When you look up at the sky, what do you see? Blue sky, the sun, maybe some clouds. But have you ever thought about what powers everything on earth? The sun. It's vital for mitochondria in order to grow for our human bodies. We produce vitamin D to get energy. But what if that same sun that gives life to so much periodically destroys everything or mostly everything? What if the sun goes through a catastrophe cycle? And what if here on earth, that catastrophe cycle is about to strike again? Sit back, grab yourself a cup of coffee or whatever it is that you're into. You're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden on the America Out Loud Network. Welcome, bold Americans, to another episode of America Emboldened. I have been beyond thrilled to do this show today since I came to the network I knew that I wanted to have Ben Davidson on as my guest. Now, Ben Davidson is somebody who has made waves on YouTube for some time talking about this catastrophe cycle of the earth. But even before he was talking about the catastrophe cycle, he was speaking about space weather. And I'm a weather nerd. I'm the type of person that people would call me Thunderstorm Bolden at my house because I would normally would predict the weather better than the weatherman. I have no degree to do so. But yet I know how to read high pressures, low pressures, precipitation gradients, and figure out what's going on. And so someday, back in 2011, I found Ben's channel on YouTube called Suspicious Observers. Now, observers is with a zero, not an O. To this day, I don't really even know that I know what that means. But now that I've been on a call with me, I can ask that question. So let's start off. Ben, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well. Thanks for having me on here. Pleasure. I'm so glad that you're here. This is going to be a blast. So my listeners, we're going to go with the assumption today that my listeners don't have the knowledge that I have that you have and try to explain this on a uh, a basis of 101, right? Let's let's present some information to people on a here is an introduction to space weather and climate theories, uh space theories about catastrophe cycles. Um so that way maybe people can find this more digestible instead of you and I talking over people's heads. Uh, so let's, let, let's start off with your background. So uh, I think that the first thing that I know about you is that you're a speed reader that started your life off as a lawyer. Is that correct? Uh, sort of. I never actually practiced law. Okay. I, I started undergraduate in meteorology and physics. I wanted to be the weatherman. But after my sophomore year, I got into a verbal altercation with one of my professors, who is now one of the most famous climate scientists in the world, about um, basically teaching us how to do the weather like weathermen did it back in the 1960s and 1970s, um, not using the latest information that was coming out in the journals, not being adaptive in his teaching. And despite the fact that I had the best forecasting scores in the class he kept telling me ben if you don't do this the way i tell you to do it i'm going to fail you and i'm going to and like really you're going to fail me because i'm better than the rest of the class and i just don't do it the way you teach us to do it um the conversation ended with him saying i think you need to find a different major i found a different university um got away from meteorology and science for a little bit did go to law school uh pretty quickly figured out I didn't want to be a lawyer, but there's one amazing thing about law school. It's one of the last places in the world that teaches you how to think as opposed to just regurgitate information somebody else 
taught you. And so one of the reasons for that is because you get this issue presented and no two cases have the same set of facts that are applied to it. No two, uh, you know, trials have all of the same facts. But then when it comes to the law, you have the written law and the statutes, you have the way different judges have interpreted it. And so you'll basically have written law and then genius judges from the past, all giving a slightly different interpretation and different ruling. And your professor's just like, figure it out. Mm -hmm. And so you quickly learn how to think for yourself, how to develop arguments, how to put those through the ringer in your own head. And once you go through law school, if you don't want to be a lawyer, the only thing you're really trained to do is interdisciplinary research. And uh, that's what I do now. Excellent. So in 2011, uh, this this channel shows up on YouTube called Suspicious Observers. There's shots of the sun, you know, in different angstroms, and you're talking a language that many people don't understand. What caused that curiosity, and where did that idea to begin this come from? So, uh, like I said, all I was trained to really do is be an interdisciplinary researcher. And when I left law school, I thought, hey, who has a use for this? Venture capital people, people who are investing millions of dollars in this, they need to know the economics, the legal aspects, and then the subject matter of whatever they're doing, whether it's investing in a technology, mining, some new chemical entity for a pharmaceutical company, you need the economics, the legal side, and the item-specific information. I'm like, well, hey, that's that's something I'm built for. But after a while, I got pretty sick of making millionaires even richer and richer and richer. Um, and it turns out I was pretty good at that. So I started to look at things that interested me. I figured out pretty quickly that, hey, wait a minute, there's no way people who watch the sun watch the weather. There is no chance people who watch earthquakes watch the sun. Uh, and interchangeably like that, everybody's just laser focused because it took virtually no time to realize all of these things are interconnected. Something happens up there, it happens in the atmosphere, it happens beneath our feet. And I had a friend who uh, worked at NASA and he said, well, hey, well, why don't you start a YouTube channel and talk about this? And I was like, well, what am I supposed to call this thing? The, the guy who watches the sun, earthquakes, and weather? And he said to me, Ben, I'm going to tell you two things if you ever want to make a difference in the world of science. One, you have to observe everything. This narrow focus most scientists have, that's how you make progress on a specialization. That's how you get published in a trade journal. But when they try to take a step back, look around and figure out the big picture, they have no idea what they're doing. So you have to be an observer of everything. And then you have to be suspicious of the idea that we've got it all figured out because the entire history of science is nothing but, hey, we know, we know the answer. Oh, no, wait, actually, we have to go back and revise this because it turns out we didn't know the answer. So I was like, huh, that's interesting. Well, I'll be suspicious and I'll be an observer. And that's where the term suspicious observers came from. It was invented by my buddy at NASA, actually. And why the zero for the O? Is that because the observer was taken or what happened? No, that is because uh, one of the other things I figured out by reading a bunch of journals and doing a bunch of, you know, looking at the astronomical observations was something called zero point energy is real. And what they call dark matter is not. Uh, they are never going to find a dark matter particle. It is all electromagnetic energy. I've heard you say that on the show with the Large Hadron Collider. Uh, you've talked about that before. Now, I teach audio, radio, and video broadcast engineering. And one of the uh, 
when I go to the history of broadcasting, one of the people I always bring up is James Maxwell. Now, James Maxwell had the theory and computations to say that everything in our entire universe was an electromagnetic universe. Mm -hmm. And so the first time that I heard you talk about that, it was right up my alley as what I teach, because I'd never heard somebody else use the language of James Maxwell and somebody that was using what I learned in college uh, on the same way. Now, you started connecting space weather and the magnetic field of the earth to a bunch of other things like psychological health, uh, earthquakes. And there are many people that have labeled you as disinformation, which I say you should wear that as a prideful badge at this point, because I, I try to tell people that if you're being labeled disinformation, it's the job of other people to debunk you, right? It's part of the scientific method. Scientific method says you pose some questions and you pose your hypotheses, you show where it is true in the world, and then find the flaws. And you continue to try to make it better until somebody can't poke a hole back in it. And I've seen people come at you. Uh, I think, you know, some people, when I told uh, my listeners that I was having you on the show, somebody put, you know, is this the same person that says Ben Davidson is pseudoscience? I said, yes, that's the same guy. And I encourage you to watch that video, but only if you're going to watch his videos as well. Make sure you have both sides of the story, because as we know, and we see over the past three years, science favors money. Science favors a narrative. Uh, there have been many scientists that have been silenced during COVID and everything else. And you, I believe, were the first person to be silenced, but because of space weather. And I find that ironic and funny. And I find it great to, to have this conversation at this point of time with you. Yeah, I, uh, I'll never forget the specific video you referenced there. It's amazing. Back in 2011, when I said they're never going to find a dark matter particle, a bunch of folks from Princeton, Harvard, Oxford, Cambridge, they actually contributed to an article trying to debunk me and call me pseudoscience saying, we're going to see it here with the argon experiments. We're going to see it here with the xenon experiments. We're going to see it when we look into deep space and we measure everything and still didn't find it. Um, and so the, the person who made that, that most recent claim, who is literally a nobody on YouTube, um, I've just learned to brush those aside at this point. Um, and when when we basically get reduced to ad hominem attacks being the vast majority, and for those who don't know, that would be instead of uh, attacking a scientific point we made, just attacking the person or their credibility or trying to make them seem not credible, uh, that is done because you can't attack the facts and you can't attack the science. And I definitely wear that one as a, bad of a badge of pride, the fact that about 75 to 85% of the people who don't like me now have nothing but ad hominem attacks to say. Yeah, I'm sure that if you look back in history, Magellan and many people, when they're saying the world is round, I tell you, there were ad hominem attacks back then as well. I mean, I respect what you've done uh, over the past you know, 11 years of research and what you provide the people for the fact that it's not the, the regular narrative. Uh, there are things that I have found of information uh, where I'm confused at times with what you're talking about versus what I hear. And that's fine. I, I don't understand everything. And I'm sure talking to you, you'd be the first person to say when you don't understand something, you go and you try to learn more about it. So you do. Uh, that's what we're called to do. So I'm going to kind of start us at kind of this, uh, first part of what you do before we get the catastrophe cycles, Chan Thomas, Adam and Eve story type stuff. Um, so let's start off with space weather. Now, the sun goes through solar minimum and solar maximum. And one of the things I teach in my class is the Carrington event. 
I talk about how the Western Union lines exploded back in uh, the 19th, mid 19th century. I think it was 1859, uh, where the sun sends off the solar flare. It hits Earth and the Earth facing side happens to be part of America. And we see electrical lines catch on fire. Bad things happen. Now, this is before we have satellites in space. This is before we have nuclear power plants. We have all these different types of generators throughout the, the country and throughout the world. That same type of event is going to happen sooner than later. We can't, you know, bury our heads in the sand and say, oh, well, you know, that was a one-off type of thing. How often, based upon your research and what you've seen, does the sun do these type of solar flares of that energy cycle? About every 150 to 200 years. So here we are, 100 and basically 160, 364 years since the last one we are in the red zone. So we're in the red zone. And as we know about uh, batteries and magnets and magnetic fields, it is cyclical, right? We, we can understand there's a cycle to everything. So that supports your theory of being able to say the sun's about 150 to 200 of what you're seeing between solar maximum, solar minimum cycles. Is that correct? Correct. Okay. And so you talk about uh, sunspots increasing. Uh, I think just recently there were uh, a number of sunspots, but nothing that was very much uh, threatening to Earth. And the reason for that is because the Earth is this very, very, very tiny ball in the vastness of space. And a solar flare would have to shoot off in the correct direction of the Earth. And so we have percentages on our, our side. And am I right in saying that the solar flare that was shot off about a year ago, a year and a half ago, was a Carrington event level solar flare that wasn't anywhere near Earth, but we had one that exploded close to that energy. Was that accurate? You know, I don't know if it was quite at that energy, but okay. I mean, it definitely would have been, you know, a significant solar storm if it had hit Earth, that's for sure. Um, and, you know, what's interesting, which you mentioned earlier, yes, Earth happened to be facing the sun when the solar flare went off, but um if there had been Western Union lines in Europe and Russia, they would have caught on fire and exploded as well. Um, these induction events act as a ring current that go around the entire planet. It just so happened that the only things that were really vulnerable to them at that time were the telegraph wires in America. Um, and so it is important to know that when this happens again, the entire world's going to take a whack, not just the side that's facing the sun. Yeah. And so if this happens, you know, things that people could expect, you're not going to have satellites because the satellites would be taken out pretty immediately. Then you're going to have the melding of lines. And so people could expect that you'd be without electricity for anywhere from three to six months, probably is a conservative type of number. Uh, maybe there's some areas where they might have some resources, but anything that's electrical, that's plugged in, uh, the chances of that making it, if it's not a Faraday cage, uh, are pretty much uh, screwed at that point. Is that accurate or am I misrepresenting that? No, that, that's that's definitely accurate. They're definitely in big trouble. But, uh, you know, the issue is if we get something like the Carrington event today, it's going to happen everywhere. And the problem with everywhere going down is there's no rebuilding. Because in 1989, when a solar storm took out power to the entire province of Quebec, the other provinces and the United States came and helped. In 2003, when it blew a bunch of transformers in Sweden and Norway, they had other people to come help. When there is no communication anywhere, when vehicles don't work, 
when all of the manufacturing plants are offline, when all of the backup transformers are fried themselves. Nobody's coming to help. Nobody's going to rebuild. The Carrington event, if it happened again today, it could literally send the entire planet back to the Stone Age. Wow. And that would be basically we are starting again from nothing. So that's certainly concerning. Uh, you know, I, I think that, you know, we saw how people got crazy over toilet paper uh, just three years ago. Imagine if you don't have electricity, and you don't have food. You know, it's important to have a plan for that. And that's certainly something that uh, you talk about on your channel, as well as in your various different forms of media. Let's continue on. So we got the Carrington events, which is really like solar storms. Now, the one thing that I've never understood, and I've had people that are part of your community as well, uh, try to explain it to me. I just don't get it. I don't understand the uh, earthquake connection to the sun. Can you help explain that to my listeners and to myself from a, you know, earthquake 101? How is the sun influencing earthquakes here on earth? What have you seen? Because I know that you did a scientific method on this too. So yes, there's, there are, like you mentioned, the charged particles, basically electric pounding of the planet. But the sun's magnetic fields stream all the way out past Pluto. They're very powerful. And those sometimes sweep past Earth and interact with Earth as well. They interact with Earth's magnetic field. Our planetary layers are basically full of water and iron two things very reactive to electromagnetism. The mantle has a lot of iron and a lot of oxygen in it, very reactive to electromagnetism. And so what we noticed was during those huge solar punches of electric power to the earth, and when the sun's magnetic fields interacting with earth were at their peaks, either in the positive or the negative, we would get the largest earthquakes. And this is because those electric and magnetic fields directly integrate with the planet. And they don't just trigger the Northern lights up at the top of the sky. Those go all the way down to the core of the planet. And when you have such powerful electric and magnetic events affecting the atmosphere, affecting the entire crust, affecting the oceans, affecting the mantle, you all of a sudden get a chance to uh, have very serious effects. And it just so happens that the most conductive pathways through the crust happen to be fault lines. Um, why that is geologically, uh, there are some different ideas about it. I don't know if any one of them is more convincing than the other, but we do know that, that those are the most conductive places and the fault lines of Earth are actually where that energy seeks to go into the ground. Kind of like, um, well, if, I mean, if you can understand why you want to be in a car during a lightning storm, because the tires do not let that energy go down, but this you don't want to be holding a golf club up in the air because then you're an attractive pathway for that lightning bolt. The fault lines are the ground's version of holding up a golf club. This is where the electromagnetic energy seeks to come through and integrate into the earth. And it just so happens they get set off by the sun a lot more easily than scientists realized a while ago. Now, thankfully, we have several papers. I think we're that's up to what I was going to ask you. Right. That's exactly what I asked 30 you. papers on it. Um, you know, m mine just being two of those. And uh, it's in several textbooks now. And I'm very happy to see that the burden of this is real, this is real is now actually off my shoulders. And they're actually now just starting to figure out how it works, which uh, that's really nice to see. It is. And so, you know, with anything, I, I, 
when you were talking about the fault lines, that was my first question. Is there papers that people can go and access? Now, do you have any of that information up on any of your sites when people go to look? Uh, some of it, it's a lot, it's on several of the videos. It's in my okay. textbooks. Um, okay. I don't have like a repository of important papers or anything like that. That would be nearly impossible to keep up with. I've covered in the last decade, approximately 17,000 peer reviewed journals. Um, I read journals hours and hours every day. Um, and sometimes it's several days before I realize, hey, wait a minute, that that thing I read last week, I need to go back and find that again. Because that actually, if I tie that with this paper I'm reading today, now this is something. Uh, so, right. And you worked with a number of people to put out your own textbook, Weatherman's Guide to the Sun, correct? Yes. Yes. Yeah. And so that is a, a resource that's out there. I, I was curious because you call it a textbook. Um, I've never read it. So I'm, I'm being just, you know, in full transparency. I don't want my listeners or you to think that I know what I'm talking about. I don't. I haven't read it. Um, are there schools that are using it? Is there professors that have picked it up? Uh, have you heard back from people that like, hey, we picked up your book and this is how we're using it? Like, how's that working out? So, yeah, uh, at first, um, at first there was just a couple. Uh, those professors luckily had tenure because they got a lot of heat for it. I'm sure. Um, but I went ahead and I put it on the on a, a couple of different resources that professors can use for free. Um Right now, uh, in the current semester, I think that there are 30, 37 universities in the United States, four in Canada, two in China, uh, several in Europe and Australia as well that are using the textbook either in part or in whole in some classes. Most of them are not introductory classes. Most of them are 300 and 400 level elective classes. Uh, sometimes it's... Um, it's like a compendium of different interesting ideas in science, and they'll just pick, you know, one chapter out of out of my book and use it there. But um, I've received a lot of good feedback from it. Yeah, certainly. Excellent. So just for my listeners, I want you to know we're talking to a published author. We're talking to somebody who has 230 million views uh, on YouTube of his videos, maybe even more than that at this point in time, has been publishing for some time, has had other scientists coming up to him, somebody who started a ranch. And we're going to talk about all that in this next segment of the show. So everybody just hold on for one moment. You're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden, my special guest, Ben Davidson, here on the America Out Loud Network. Hello, I'm Ben Marble, MD, and I founded MyFreeDoctor.com as a donation-supported, faith-based nonprofit with a mission to save lives by delivering free doctor visits to patients in all 50 states of America. MyFreeDoctor.com treats a broad range of health concerns like COVID-19, long COVID, sinus infections, urinary tract infections, rashes, medication refills, and more. So please visit MyFreeDoctor.com, where we're healing America one person at a time. For 40 years, alarmists have been warning of a climate catastrophe, yet none of their dire predictions have come true. Temperatures have not soared, sea level rise has not been unusual, and extreme weather events have not increased in either frequency or intensity. In short, there is no climate emergency. For 15 years, the International Climate Science Coalition has led the call for climate realism and a made-in-America climate plan a plan based on real science that responds to the real-world needs of Americans, supports economic growth, and strengthens our essential infrastructure, a plan that protects the environment and ensures that Americans can enjoy the blessings of clean air, clean land, and clean water for generations to come. 
It's time to put ideology and pseudoscience aside. It's time for a sensible climate plan. For more information or to donate, visit our website, icsc-climate.com. Continuing on, we were talking about uh, earthquakes and how it was connected to the magnetic field through fault lines. And one of the things that Ben has been talking about and where we should probably find most of our conversation moving forward in the interest of uh, what people I think are going to find fascinating is the earth catastrophe cycle. Now, the earth catastrophe cycle is likely, I would guess, Ben, what you get the most pushback against by people saying this is a crazy theory of what's going on. And so what you've been doing is going through the geological changes in the earth, looking at the different uh, sedimentary elements that try to support your hypothesis and the scientific method to say, nope, we have history here. We can see this. I'm going to tell you one of my observations uh, that I believe lines up to what you've talked about. If you go to the Grand Canyon and you see the different layers, it's clear to me a couple different things out in that area. The first part is it's clear to me that water, a great water body, had once been there. And you can see where a river or something like that had gone through and then throughout the years had come down. Where did that water go, right? It had to shift into a different type of region. It's also clear to me that you can see where there are rocks out in that area that almost have faces where people were putting human elements in places that were likely unreachable uh, and unlivable, I guess you would say, uh, in modern society. But yet we see these structures that go back to maybe like an ancient civilization. There's even a, a new Netflix show uh, on this, which I thought was awesome because it ties into everything so very well. So yeah, I, wish you, I wish you didn't think it was a comet, but yeah. <laughs> yeah, so did I. But I, I, I was able to connect the dots based on watching your videos to make my own conclusions on what I believe is probably a little bit more accurate. Now, in the 1960s, the CIA was doing some research on earth catastrophes. And there is a pseudonym that was used by the name of Chan Thomas. This gentleman wrote the Adam and Eve story where the CIA wrote about how the earth goes through a catastrophe cycle. And so lo and behold, we have our own intelligence community that has studied this in the past. And then it wasn't really anywhere on anything mainstream that you could find until about uh, 2002, where it became declassified. And then I hear you start talking about it maybe around like 2016, 2015. Uh, and I'm going, oh, I heard about this on uh, the coast to coast. Now I hear Ben talking about this. This is getting spicy. I like it. So let's take people through uh, what you're speaking of when we talk about the earth catastrophe cycle in your words. So the earth catastrophe cycle is based on something that actually happens throughout the solar system. And it's largely related to the sun. But here at our planet, it involves a rapid shift of the magnetic field. People call it a magnetic pole shift. People call it a pole flip. Some call it a magnetic excursion. But essentially, they happen about every 10 to 12,000 years. In fact, they're so well studied that they've actually given names to the last several ones that exist, starting you know 12,000 years ago and going back 12,000 years and 12,000 years and 12,000 years before that. And I could riddle off the names. The last one was called Gothenburg. Before that, Lake Mungo. Before that, Mono Lake. Before that, Lachamp. Before that, Vostok, Greenland. Before that, Toba. Um, all the way 
past to about 180,000 years, we've got excellent evidence of this happening just about every 10 to 12,000 years. And so first things first, it's been 12,000 years since the last one. And so we are right on time. Second, we're not only right on time, but everything you would expect to see if we were having that event ongoing and beginning again now is happening. Earth's magnetic poles are shifting and the magnetic field, the magnetic protection our planet has from the sun, supernova, gamma rays, all that scary stuff out in space is diminishing, getting weaker and weaker and weaker. We are also seeing a lot of the effects that you would expect to in the atmosphere, in the crust, um, and in people as well. Um, because the major effect of this is as our magnetic shell protecting our planet diminishes, we're getting more cosmic energy coming into the planet. That's going to affect our brains. That's going to affect the atmosphere. That's going to affect the crust, as we were just talking about with earthquakes. And so we're seeing everything from minute changes in the rotation speed of the planet um, by affecting two parts of the brain called the hippocampus and the locus ceruleus. Uh, we are seeing lower cognitive powers of people, higher bits of emotional instability, uh, greater tendency towards panic, fear, and anxiety. And it's actually responsible for a significant amount of the weather changes that are currently all blamed on carbon dioxide and our pollution. Uh, I'm no fan of pollution. I'm no fan of deforestation. But as a realist, that's only a small part of the story of climate change. Um, the fact of the matter is we're losing our protection from the sun and from all these other things, and they're having a profound effect on us. Can, can, let me, let me, can I stop you there? Because I think that's something that people come back on. It's a question that I had for you because I've heard you talk about it's a small fraction of climate change. There are people that have referred to as a climate denier, but I've never gotten that impression. So I'm going to ask you directly, are you a climate denier? Or do you understand and do you support that we do have an effect on climate? Uh, we do, but to be honest, deforestation and the urban heat island effect are actually more powerful in terms of climate change than carbon dioxide, okay. much more. Um, and of course, the climate is changing. There's no question about that. It's just that in case you haven't noticed, cold records and snow records are being broken just as fast as heat records. Um, the there have been several papers talking about, hey, we're very surprised to see this element of climate change. Climate change was supposed to really shut down a lot of the jet stream activity and make it wavier and weaker. But we're seeing stronger and stronger jet stream activity. That's what you'd expect from a weakening magnetic field of the planet. It's not what you'd expect from more CO2. Uh, and so we we see, um, you know, a lot of people don't know this. You know, the plant, the plants. The things that actually use carbon dioxide for food, they've been starving on this planet for about 4 million years. The reason why the vast majority of plants that ever lived on this planet are gone was because they like having a lot more CO2. What do we do in greenhouses? We pump CO2 in about four times what's regularly in the atmosphere. Um, CO2 is our friend. Um, without CO2, plants wouldn't make oxygen and we would all die. Um, but getting back to the, the yes. issue here, we are, you know, I would say carbon dioxide is about five to 10% of climate change. Another 10 to 15% is deforestation, uh, and other things like that. And then the vast majority of it are long-term changes in the sun and earth's magnetic field. Hmm. And have you found papers at this point that are really showing that 
you know, I guess my question is, why are climate scientists, and I understand the money side and everything else, but I'm guessing there's got to be papers showing the sun and the magnetic field. There's got to be some evidence that you could show. And how come that would be ignored in your opinion? I have no idea why it's ignored, but Weatherman's Guide to the Sun, that textbook, it's 300 pages, 500 citations to the best peer-reviewed literature on this. When I wrote it, I had to cherry pick. There was over a thousand papers they could have used. And uh, since that was published and the latest version was published in 2020, there have been several hundred more papers. I covered one just this morning, actually, about how changes on the sun affect the winds down at the surface level all the way across the world. And they don't understand as well how all of this works electrically. And so they leave it out of all their climate models. They have these papers that suggest it's real. And even though there's hundreds and hundreds of them, they refuse to put it into the climate models. And that is honestly just because of the money. You can't tax the sun. You can't make a law and start to control people and take away their freedoms and be able to uh, grab resources and uh, demand taxes for this and that if it's the sun, if it's the magnetic field, and if we aren't to blame. Um, The money has a lot more to do with it than a lot of people realize. Yeah, so I mean, and that goes, I want to get back to catastrophe stuff, but I I didn't want people to gloss over or have my listeners come back go, why didn't you ask the question? And so I just wanted to kind of get back into that just a little bit because I, I, I appreciate you clarifying a little bit that they can find the research. It's peer reviewed. It's out there. Back to the catastrophe cycle. Every 12,000 years, there's evidence as seen that the earth goes through a horrible event, a horrible event caused from a pole shift. And this was once thought, I think when I read Adam and Eve, I was thinking, oh, my God, this is like the end of almost all humanity. But the understanding now is not really the same. I I, I even heard you kind of change your your tone over the past several years. Originally, it was, you know, there could be a thousand mile per hour winds. We're going to have like a thousand foot waves. You know, this is going to be really bad unless you're in a cave. And now it's you've kind of softened the blow a little bit of, you know, people are going to live through this. Yes, there will be a loss of life. Yes, it's going to be really bad. But those that prepare, this is a livable uh, thing. What has caused you and your understanding to switch from the beginning, going with the Adam and Eve story, kind of more verbatim, to now more of a story of hope? Well, you know, if you actually go back to that original video where I shared the Adam and Eve story, the reason why everybody knows about it now, mm-hmm. um, I basically read chapter one of the Adam and Eve story. And then af- right after that, in the ending part of the video, I said, you know, guys, this is probably a little extreme. If this happened, nobody would be here right now. Everything would have died. Um, but I've also been able to really dive into the several hundred papers on this topic now. I've, I mean, separate from the 500 that are in the textbook and the hundreds more that exist, we're on the catastrophe topic now. I've covered more than 600 of those papers on the channel. And uh, the, about the best 150 to 200 are in my other books. And those are really giving a pretty concrete view of what we should expect. Um, unfortunately, continent-wide tsunamis are a real thing. Increased radiation is a real thing. Thousand-mile-per-hour winds, probably not a thing. Um 
major climate changes, definitely a thing. And so we have to basically look back at the disappearances of species in the fossil record. We have to look to the apparent just appearance of new species in the fossil record in basically the geologic snap of a finger. We have to look at tree rings. We have to look at ice cores. We have to look at, uh, you know, fossilized bones and other things like that. See the different radiation levels that they were exposed to. See the manner in which they were deposited. There are these things called surge deposits where it's literally like mountains of bones and trees and dirt are all just piled up together on the side of a mountain as if literally you have two options, either a fantastic tsunami swept across an entire continent or the hand of God just came down and swiped everything over to a mountain. I tend not to go with the hand of God explanation. Um, I tend to go with the catastrophic tsunami explanation for that one. Um, but yeah, we have evidence that this is, you know, it happens fairly regularly. Uh, and we have that in magnetism. We have it in sediment. Uh, we have it in isotope data. And we have it in the fossil record. And what's interesting is it's not just something that happens to the earth. We so, have evidence. Go ahead. Yeah, well, so the fossil record before, I want to hear what other evidence we have outside the earth. The fossil record, I heard you say recently that you found in records tropical fish uh, fossils and tropical animals in the North Pole area, um, as well as in layers that would be explainable only by there's some type of pole shift and some type of climate change that would happen. Is that correct? So, Absolutely. So there's, there's been everybody who has studied this, including Einstein, um, says the earth turns over, that we actually have a pole shift, that it's really, really terrible. And of course, this goes against all logical geophysics. This goes against ideas of inertia, things like that. And yet Einstein died trying to figure out not whether or not it happened, but how it would happen. And all of the researchers for hundreds of years who have looked at it said the same, including Chan Thomas, um, Velikovsky, any of the big names that have ever studied this. It wasn't until I read World in Peril by Ken White that I really started to get a good idea of how this was put together. Now, Ken White is the son of Major Maynard E. White, who was the leader of Project Nanook. He was a U.S. Army major, took this expedition up to the Arctic back in the 40s. And what they were supposed to be doing was watching to see if Russia was coming over the top. That's That was the big deal back then, U.S. versus Russia. But they were also trying to figure out navigation in the Arctic. And, and to do that, they had to find the magnetic pole and how it was moving around. They not only found evidence that it was weakening and that it was starting to shift, but their geologists they brought with them started digging down. And obviously, there had been some snow and ice accumulated on the surface. It's the Arctic. But when they got down to the sediment, they first noticed... 12,000 years of tropical fossils. And then below that, 12,000 years of polar fossils. And it was 12,000 years, 12,000 years, tropical polar, tropical polar, tropical polar. And, you know, they had also at that time had some colleagues who found some fossilized trees from Sweden uh, and Norway and other parts of Scandinavia that were dated to about 15, 16,000 years ago, and they had no tree rings. Well, the interesting thing is, 
for there to be no tree rings, you have to be at the equator um, because there's there's no winter time, which is really the thing that starts the end of one ring and the beginning of another tree ring. Um, and so these things all combined said that, wait a minute, yes, the planet does go like this, and then it turns back, and then it goes like this, and then it turns back. And the only reason we have that information, even though it was classified, Major White knew this shouldn't be classified. And so in this book, we have the documents from the Pentagon that he kept. We have the records from the Arctic that he kept, the analysis from the Rand Corporation, which he kept to give to his son to publish years and years later, because obviously he couldn't do it. That would be treason. Um, but, you know, information given to somebody else that they publish, there's no legal recourse against that. And so that that's basically the story of how the book World in Peril came to be. We had Major White basically steal documents from his expedition, from the Pentagon meetings and from the Rand Corporation and gave them to his son to publish. And it just so happens they line up with everything that Einstein believed, um, with everything that the other physicists and other geologists who had studied this throughout time and believed. And the interesting thing is Einstein would have figured it out eventually, but he never looked at the sun and he never looked at Earth's magnetic field. He was just looking at ice weight and volcanoes and earthquakes and other things they thought about the mantle at that time. He never looked outside or to something bigger than the Earth is potentially having an effect on it, or else he would have figured it out. Have you ever read the Atlantis Blueprint? Mm, no, I'm guessing, I'm guessing no. Okay, so the Atlantis Blueprint uh, takes a like really complex network of connections to sacred sites, kind of like what you're explaining, where you would see different fossil records to try to trace back to where Atlantis was located, see if it was possible. So you might find that interesting, you may not, but um, a, a listener of my show uh, had heard that I was having you uh, come on, and he's huge into what's in Antarctica and what's underneath the ice and what that really means uh, and whether or not Atlantis was real. And so he asked me that I, I ask you that question. So that that's for him. Great civilization is buried under ice there. Yes, I believe, I believe so as well. All right. We, we got to take one more break. When we come back, we're really going to get into the disaster, how people should be prepared because according to Ben, if, if I'm understanding correctly, it is very possible. It's in our lifetime uh, coming sooner than later. Uh, so we're going to talk about that right on the other side of the break. You're listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden and my special guest, Ben Davidson, here on the America Out Loud Network. We know you love the versatility and portability of the Genesis Fogger, but sometimes you just want to set it and forget it. Well, we heard you. Introducing the UX4 HOCL Atomizer. This stationary unit quietly protects you and is perfect for smaller spaces. With over a quarter million units sold in Japan, it's now available in the United States. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud to see the UX4 in action and receive a 15% discount on either Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you're ready for anything. Cold and flu season is here. Wouldn't it be great if you had a way to minimize airborne viral threats? Well, now there is, and it's a pulvidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray called Cofix RX. You might even say it's just what the doctor ordered. To reduce your chance of getting hurt, you wear a safety belt when you're driving. To limit sun damage, you wear sunscreen on the beach. Cofix RX is just like that. It's an additional layer of protection. 
It's sold by thousands of pharmacists and medical doctors nationwide. It's made right here in the USA. Again, it's a povidone iodine-based antiviral nasal spray. You've heard them talk about it here on the Outloud Network over and over again. Check out cofixrx.com. That's C-O-F-I-X-R-X.com for a retailer near you or use coupon code OUTLOUD for 20% off at cofixrx.com. America Out Loud beats to the pulse of our nation. We know when you're angry, you're troubled, confused, glad, and thankful. We know you because we are you. Join us as we explore the most important issues of our time. We are America Out Loud Talk Radio. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back, Bold Americans. We are in our final segment. I can't believe time is ticking by so fast. I'm loving the conversation. We're speaking once again with Ben Davidson from Suspicious Observers. We're talking about the catastrophe uh, cycle that the earth. And so we've established that according to geological uh, findings, that it looks like about every 12,000 years, the earth goes through a very, very bad day. Um, bad day, bad month, whatever you want to call it. But it's a rather quick process from what we can see uh, based upon the findings. And according to Ben, we are due. We are so due that Ben is preparing um, for somewhere between 2030 and 2040 for this type of pole shift and disaster scenario. Is that accurate? 2030s or the 2040s. Yeah. Somewhere in that 15, 20 year window. All I know is that's uh, about 2030, 2040 too soon for me. Uh, <laughs> now, unlike some people, when they have a theory and they're seeing the science and they sit back, they don't just keep it to themselves. Ben has been shouting this from the rooftops now every single day, 365 days a year on his YouTube site. Uh, but he also decided to take uh, action and he started the Observer Ranch, where it's like-minded individuals that are trying to figure out what happens in 2030, 2040, and how do you survive? How do you continue to keep society going on and living and uh, continuing to populate this earth rather than maybe just some people knowing? So my first question for you, Ben, um, if you know this information, you were able to find this out. I'm guessing that you believe that governments and other people know this information as well. Is that pretty accurate? Oh, definitely. So, so why, why don't we ever hear about this from other people? Is it because of the panic? What, what do you believe? Well, it would absolutely cause panic. You know, one of the smartest things said in the movie 2012 was by that government guy who said, what do you just want to tell everyone they're doomed? There'd be anarchy. And if you think about it, it's true. If you told everybody the world was going to end in this way in 10 years, the very next day, nobody's going to work. Chances of you calling the police and them showing up, zero. Uh, there would be runs on banks. There would be runs on grocery stores, runs on farms. Um, the entire infrastructure of the planet would begin to break down within just days, and they would literally destroy anything you'd want to save. Uh, and so, sadly, whether or not you you know, want to save everybody or you want to keep it to yourself, silence is the only way to go. Um, if you look at what governments are doing, the way they're spending so, reckless, so recklessly like there's no tomorrow, 
It's because they know there isn't. Um, if you take a look at the underground facilities that are even are just acknowledged, forget about the secret ones we don't know about. Acknowledged facilities underground could hold over 100 million people. I don't know if you do the math, but there aren't that many people in the military. There aren't that many military scientists. You're, you're um, living by one, by the way. You're out in Colorado. Yeah. And Denver International Airport, which I visited years ago, is uh, one of the craziest government contracts in the history of America. They have been building the Denver International Airport now for 30 plus years with underground tunnels that are miles and miles into the Rocky Mountains. And no one truly knows exactly what's down there. But every once in a while, there's a nice uh, mainstream media hit piece that goes, oh, it's a conspiracy theory. And then they take you into the tunnels and you're going, but wait, we're seeing the tunnels. Where's this going? What's it for? No one wants to answer that part of the question. So there's yeah. evidence around us that yes. And actually, that was what I loved about the uh, ancient civilization uh, series on Netflix, where he shows the tunnels that are found in Italy and all over the world where people seem to have retreated for a time period and lived underground. They lived in caves. And this is modern societies, okay, not modern the way we experience modern, but modern societies uh, where people were living in caves with tools and instruments in order to uh, maintain life. Uh, so I find that fascinating. Um, and so I live pretty close to the Atlantic Ocean here in Delaware. You know, I think our highest point in Delaware is like 132 feet above sea level. I'm guessing if this thing fires off and changes start to happen, there's no time for me to get high enough into the Appalachian mountains to be safe, or is there what type of time period from the moment we know that things have hit the fan to getting to safety? What type of time period do we have? In Delaware, you're just going to want to find something that floats. <laughs> Float and hope I can make it up the wave. <laughs> yeah. Um, okay. You know, it'll, it'll be more like a fast rising high tide. It's not going to be a wave that goes over your head. Right. Um, but it's, you know, it's the kind of thing where if you're at that hundred or some feet within a couple of minutes, the water is going to start to approach your feet. And then a minute after it reaches your feet, it's going to be above your head, but it's going to be rising like this. So you can just float away. But um, OK, so it's more like the traditional tsunami like we saw after Fukushima, where it's this constant influx of water, constant yeah, destroying exactly. as it moves inland. OK. I was I was curious about that. And so uh, what I've heard you say, and I've heard other people talk about some of the safest places here on the East Coast is the Appalachian Mountains. Uh, being on the Appalachian Mountains gives you enough height as far as to try to keep away from the water. But then I've also heard that also matters which side of the Appalachian Mountains you're on. And it's not going to be known which side you're on until the event happens. Is that pretty accurate, too? No, we we know that the uh, the Atlantic Ocean and the Gulf of Mexico are going to be coming up into the states. Okay, uh, and so um, you know the waters are going to break through the Appalachians. They'll probably spare the peaks, but I mean, last time and granted, we're not tilting the same way this time. We're tilting back the other way. Last time, the Pacific broke through the Rockies. Okay, and so if it can break through the Rockies, the Atlantic can break through the Appalachians. Um, so, um, like I said, yes, you could probably try to get up onto the peaks. Um, but in general, you know, I, I expect that salt water will pour into the Great Lakes up around Michigan from the Gulf of Mexico, from the Atlantic. 
It'll make it all the way there. Wow. That would be a catastrophe uh, beyond what I was even imagining in my head. If you cannot keep some of the fresh water out of <laughs> the salt water from the fact, like one of the things I love about Aruba, I love to go Aruba for vacation for the fact that they use the salt water for your drinking water. They found a system that purifies it and their water tastes delicious, right? And I've often wondered in the United States, how come we're not taking water out of the ocean and desalinating it in order to drink? That just threw a complete other monkey wrench in my mind of how do you continue to get your water unless it's raining in that disaster scenario? I wasn't even thinking in those terms of like, we now have contamination of salt water into fresh water and dehydrating people. Well, the good news is that mountain springs will take most of the salt out. You find a spring coming out of the side of a mountain, that'll probably still be good to drink. Rainwater catchment's going to be important for quite some time. Um, you know, there is water that comes up from deep springs that you can drink as well. Um, so whether it comes deep uh, from deep in the underground or, you know, from the side of a mountain, that's probably drinkable. But I would say water catchment from rain is probably going to be pretty important for a while. And so what are you um, doing personally, what you want to share? Because I also, I, I personally, I'm a prepper. I'm going to put that out there for my listening audience. Probably most of my listening audience already knows that about me. I've had shows with uh, people that teach prepping before, uh, but I personally, you know, I, I dehydrate my own food and put things in the storage to make sure I'm good. But uh, what you're comfortable with sharing, because I also understand I don't share everything that I do. Um, what are some common sense things if people are going, you know what, this guy's making sense today. This is a pretty strong theory and it's troublesome. What are some things that you would recommend people start doing now to prepare for the next decade? So the first thing you have to do is you have to stay informed because what I don't recommend is you freak out and bug out off the grid tomorrow, especially not if you have kids, especially not if you have a job, you know, things like that. And so stay informed, you know, when we are watching all the changes, not only on the earth, but all the changes throughout the solar system, all the other planets are showing changes that, that are involved with this as well right now. And so being able to see where are we in the process, how fast are things going, staying informed is got to be one of the best ways to prepare. Beyond that, um, location is paramount. You know, the people who did the best during the last cycle appear to have been away from the oceans, high in elevation, and also had somewhere underground to go. Let's say you've already got that covered. Food and water storage. Super important. Seeds and the pre-industrial tools to basically perform agriculture because we're not going to have electricity. Um, Second Amendment, probably pretty important uh, because there's going to be a lot of people who are hungry, a lot of people who want what you got. Um, basically, the kind of things that would have been important in a, you know, 200, 300 years ago, all the things like that are probably pretty important. And that would include everything from, you know, those pre-industrial tools to, I mean, if you've got somewhere to store wood. That's fantastic. If you've got a way to store books, that's good. Um, but I would say the, the most important things are 
up in your mind, staying aware and staying informed, and then thinking about your location. Because let's say that you know you're in a location where that's going to be inundated with water. There's no point in storing up 20 years worth of food. You're you're going to have to float away or die. And so then it becomes more about, okay, do I know how to hunt? Do I know how to make a shelter? Do I know how to find a spring? Do I know how to do this? Do I know how to kill an animal, skin it, and make a jacket out of it? Do I know how to make my own shoes kind of thing? Um, so it, it, it starts with being aware and being informed. Then you think about your location and your locate and your needs based on your location. And then you start going down the list, food and water, future food and water, seeds, things like that, protection of myself and my family, protection from the elements, and then everything, you know, the kinds of resources like books and supplies and other things like that. Right. And then you have a responsibility at that point to be able to retell history. And so I think that's that's also a very interesting standpoint because right now I'm horrified when I go to research my shows, uh, the search engines that we used to have access to to be able to go back to the 1990s. A friend was telling me search engines at this point are optimized for current events and that they're removing history. But the problem is we're closing libraries, we're removing the books there too. And in the catastrophe event, we lose human record if we don't have people that know their history and are well-informed. We don't have information that's available to us. Uh, so we're seeing uh, almost a censoring of the mind right now in 2022. We've been watching it now, I believe, for the past several years. Uh, but it's also showing you why that's so important to have people that survive that are aware of history and can retell history that have those tools. Like one of my skills that I probably would bring to the table would be ham radio, right? It would be figuring out how you're going to get the electricity in order to be able to do some of that. But if you had some batteries left over and things, and you had a ham radio type of communication, it's possible the communication could happen in a post uh, catastrophe world that way. Um, it's the most primitive communication going all the way back to Marconi and the military. Uh, but it's also possible that the electromagnetic field so screwed up that we're not communicating much uh, through those type of frequencies. So that's really a gray area. But I think about, you know, what would my skills be, whether it's historian, whether it's uh, how I can build things, engineer things. And I'm sure that you're going to have to be around like minded people. It's almost like a zombie apocalypse. <laughs> you need a bunch of skills around you. Absolutely. In many ways, it's going to be like a zombie apocalypse. Most of the people that are left are not going to have any idea what just happened. Right. They're just going to be hungry. It's sad that, that hopefully, you know, the reason I wanted to do this show and I was so excited to get you on is uh, what what Ben's talking about here. I know for a fact that Ben is, okay, Ben, I'm going to let you ask this so I don't put words in your mouth. Your percentage of commitment and percentage of your theory of scientific method being correct, what percentage do you give yourself? Depends which part we're talking about. The okay, fact okay. That something terrible that happens every 12,000 years, more than 99%. Okay. The, the specifics about how it's going to go down, 85 to 90%. 
And that's what you're theorizing is, you know, the pole shift. Is it a, is it a micronova? You're talking about all these different theories yeah, that the, kind of the, figure the out what gets solar us there. Flash, the great solar flash, right. the micronova, the fact that all these changes we're seeing throughout the solar system are due to us passing a galactic magnetic point. Um, the fact that they're all in the fact that all the planets, the entire solar system shifts at this 12,000 year cycle, things like that you know, those are a little less certain, but in terms of the fact that something terrible happens on this planet about every 12,000 years. Yep. The fact that we're about 12,000 years from the last one and we're seeing every sign we would expect if we're having it again right now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that that's something that's important to cover as well, because people I think respond to commitment and people respond to the fact that like, Hey, here's how I am convinced this is going to happen or you know, just the theory that I had, I figured you were close to 90 to 95, maybe even 99% judging from your videos over the years. All right. So the last topic I kind of wanted to kind of get into today, um, and hopefully I'm leaving ourselves enough time for this. I may not be, but that's okay too. I think we can at least get thoughts out on to, from our brains out to the microphones. So 2020 brought a pandemic to the world and from a podcast perspective, as somebody who has had the great joy of saying, you know, careful, Bolden, you're going into conspiracy theories. I've had the last laugh. I'm really enjoying myself over here. I'm not gloating. I think loading is, you know, not a good quality, but I've had the last laugh on a number of topics recently as we're finding more and more information's coming out to say that this isn't exactly how things seem. We have uh, major research now to show that this thing was created in a lab. Uh, where people are going, look, we can see the gene insertions here at the 23rd spot of the DNA, which is where we always insert. And here it is in COVID-19. This would only happen less than 0.000001% of the time in nature. It's a statistical anomaly. And then if you put in the fact that it was a bat, that's a statistical anomaly on top of it. So it's statistically impossible that this thing was came out of nature. And so people like you who have had people do ad hominem attacks get labeled as disinformation, misinformation, malinformation. I have to think that, you know, in many ways you should feel a little bit better right now uh, about what you've been doing. And like I said at the beginning, wearing that badge proudly, because it's those that are critical free thinkers that are going to be successful in the future. Uh, I've been talking for many years about how social media was the alphabet agencies, that if people felt that the social media companies weren't run by the CIA and FBI, we're now seeing with the Twitter files that the FBI has employed people at the highest levels, people related to Fauci, people related to Podesta. Um, they're all in the, the parts of influence. And so I guess what I'm asking you is this. As you've run this YouTube channel, you've taken the ad hominem attacks. How do you wake up anybody who's still asleep at the fact that their thoughts are being manipulated? Or do you just keep on pushing forward and saying, you know what? You're on your own. They're on their own until you see the spark. You know, for many things in the world, you can use the statement, you can lead a horse to water, but you can't make him drink. With this, you just have to go sit by the water source and wait till you see a horse walk up. And the moment they start drinking, then you start talking. But trying to trying to break 
the door down with people trying to even leave breadcrumbs. It's not been proving very useful. People's normalcy bias, their cognitive dissonance, it's quite powerful, especially when it's as reflective on their own decision-making and their own intellect as anything else. People need to come to this on their own, and many people will even get there inside their heads and never let anybody know about it because they're so embarrassed. But when you see somebody starting to wake up, all of a sudden they're open to just about anything, and that's when you can hit them with everything you got. But in terms of just going out and finding somebody who's completely unaware of this stuff, you got a better chance of losing a friend, starting a fight at a Thanksgiving dinner, things like that, than you do of actually convincing everyone of anything. Yeah, I think that's a, a great way to sum up this conversation because either you've listened to the past hour and you're going, I want to learn more about suspicious observers. I want to learn more about Ben. Or you're kind of going into your confirmation bias and you're you're trying to go into your world of comfort right now and you're going, I don't want to believe this. I don't want to listen to this. Maybe you've already changed the uh, podcast, but you know, you know the, the good news for those individuals is if they say to themselves, All right, I want to go find somebody who says Ben is wrong. I go ahead, go right. go search it on Google. You'll find plenty of people who don't think I'm correct. But um turns out they don't have a whole lot of legs to stand on. And I feel like a centipede in that realm. So Ben, if somebody wants to uh, learn more about your work, uh, support your work, uh, I know you have a ton of different sites and links. And so I don't want to miss anything. Do you have a kind of a rundown of where people outside of suspicious observers on, on YouTube? Just one place to start. And that is the free content every day, the free playlists, the free movies at the YouTube channel, Suspicious Observers. If you're interested in other stuff, believe me, I don't make my my books or my other websites secret, but honestly, go, come check out the free stuff where I also put the links to the papers and everything else. So you can go fact, you don't have to believe a word I say. I let you, I give you everything you need to fact check what I say. Um, and uh, yeah, most people who do that, as opposed to listening to somebody else end up becoming suspicious observers themselves. Well, if you'd like to become a suspicious observer with me here on the America Out Loud Network on my show, uh, feel free to not only watch the video, but hit the subscribe button, give it a like, give it a thumbs up, or engage in conversation with the community. There's a ton of people there that are always happy to offer some information back. I found it to be a great cycle of videos each day. Um, and I, I, I love your catchphrase, Ben. It's, I think my opening line is a pretty good line. Grab yourself a cup of coffee or whatever it is that you're into, but your closing line is far better than my be bold America. Do you want to tell people what your closing line is? Absolutely. I end every show, uh, every one of the daily shows with eyes open, no fear, be safe, everyone. And I think that's a great way to end today's show. Thank you for sticking with the show today with Ben and I here on America Emboldened. We hope that we honored your time well. I know that you have a ton of other shows that you can listen to, but you choose to be here with me each day, Monday through Friday. And for that, I'm forever grateful. You've been listening to America Emboldened with Greg Bolden and my special guest, Ben Davidson on the America Out Loud Network. Be bold, America. Uh -huh.